This is the Women Emerging Expedition Podcast, so you can follow the ups and downs and the roundabouts of the expedition and play your part in them. 24 women started on the 28th of May 2022 on this virtual expedition that will take nine months. We are women from across the world determined to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. We'll be successful so that women the world over will be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, 14th episode, Julia Middleton, leader of the expedition. This episode is completely devoted to guides, amazing, wonderful expedition guides. There are hundreds and hundreds of women involved, increasingly thousands and thousands of women involved in the expedition. At the heart of them, as you know, there are the 24 members of the expedition. But there's an increasing number who are also calling themselves guides to the expedition. They are women who have said that they will take the calls from the members of the expedition and help them think through their ideas, test their theories, trial their thoughts. They'll offer their own stories, they'll share their experiences, they'll reveal their utter triumphs and their abject failures. And they'll do this with generosity and honesty. So this episode is entirely devoted to the extraordinary guides to the expedition. I'll tell you later on, if you want to be a guide, how to do it. Two women I'm going to talk to this morning. First, I'm going to talk to Paula. She, as far as I know, is the first guide to take the first member's call. It was a call made by Sarah. Now, I think this was the first call made by the first guide. It's as far as I know it was, but it has to be said that things are snowballing so fast, I can't absolutely promise that this was the first. But Sarah spoke to Paula. Sarah is a member of the expedition and she wants to investigate different models of collective leadership. And Paula has been involved in many, many women's cooperatives in South America over the years and more recently in Matriarcha, which she created, most wonderful name, Matriarcha. So I spoke to Paula and, and actually she started by reminding me why from the very beginning she was involved in Women Emerging when I hadn't even mentioned the word expedition to her. It was simply women emerging, and we were in the deepest, darkest COVID isolation days. I thought it was a brilliant idea that you had to be able to connect people, women and men, around the world and whatever gender they choose to be nowadays, but and have like a little window to explore outside of the of the being trapped in, in situations. It was a very refreshing feeling and the feeling of you are powerful enough to create new things. We both are, Paula. We both <laughs> know that. I've watched you create Matriarcha and I've watched you create Matriarcha and hand it over. Yeah, that's an interesting process, no? Because in fairness, I, I doubt that people create things on their own. I think that the innovation is in the encounter in the meeting of other people that sparkles you cannot tell really where an idea came from it came from iterations and conversations so 
honestly, we created this together with the women and it was good that they could practice their skills of leading their own company. So it was like a natural process. So then when, when, when women emerging from isolation sort of birthed this expedition, you immediately said, yes, you would be a guide. I had the possibility to interview, to be interviewed by Sarah uh, Henry the other day from Stanford. That is a, a place of, of thought in the edges of the new thinking and to see what she's doing and proposing. And we talk about how important it is to make the ecosystem, to be able with the tools and technologies we have nowadays to make uh, possible the ecosystem to express themselves without needing the interpretation of a leader, a unique view of things. How can you gather consensus in different iterations and rounds of a lot of people working together? And the dimension of the human processes now is impressive. You can hear a lot of voices in a very short period of time and you can arrive to consensus. It's like the collective unconscious is open there and is uh, reachable. So it was, I want to, make a point that this movement and this exploration is really going deep into the a wide ecosystem of people. It absolutely is. And um, thank you so much for talking to Sarah because she so wants to hear different voices on how collaboration works in different ways in different parts of the world. What did you, what did you learn through Matriarcha? I learned through Matriarcha that it's very important to to take the time to listen. When I first met the women, I always uh, tell this story. Uh, I was asking questions like crazy because I was curious about their culture. And uh, this is a very untapped community in the middle of nowhere in Grand Chaco region. And here there were hundreds of women. And I asked questions, simple questions, and it took forever for them to reply and they talk between themselves. And I thought it's because I didn't make myself clear. So I started to speak louder and faster. And suddenly one of them said, I'm sorry, <laughs> if you continue to ask questions, it would be very difficult to, for us to come to an answer. What we do is we talk between themselves some ideas and the person who knows more about what you're asking is going to give you the answer. But you have to give us the time to think ourselves and to get a consensus. So that's the first thing I learned that really impacted my way of collaborating with them and others. And I realized that, yes, there are people that know a lot more about things than me. And it's nice to have them in, in the team, be partners with them. Other thing I learned is that it's not about values because I see many, many collaborative process start to try to agree upon values. And I think uh, people value different things, but we all share a vision of what is better for humanity. We, we all can describe the picture, like we all want to be happy and healthy and want to get along with the neighbors. So we focus more on the vision than on the, on the values, because some people are in favor of abortion, some are not, some, are, some people like organics, some people don't. So uh, agreeing on all the values makes the process really impossible because it, it's what people is a society is complex and has different uh, approaches to things, but it's very easy to agree upon the view, surprisingly, uh, of what we expect for the future. We want our kids to be happy, healthy, to have nice relationships, you know. And do you then come back to values afterwards or do you avoid them completely? No, no, no. It's not that we avoid them because we operate on our mindsets. 
that mindset is, is supported by the values you have, but uh, you give some space to understand that we are talking about planting shower. We don't need to agree upon, upon abortion rights, you know. Let's do the shower thing. And we are agreeing that we need to belong to the world flux of exchange. And we don't need to agree about being uh, evangelist or, or Muslim. We are commercializing goods. So I don't think you have to avoid them because there are many times we have, uh, have very interesting uh, conversation and spiritual reach out between each other. But that doesn't mean my values were compromised in any way, not theirs. One day I'm going to come with you. <laughs> well, now, actually, today they are in Rome because they organize a fashion show. <laughs> and uh, I received the invitation like anyone else. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, called, that's called success when they don't need you in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. That's very much got me thinking. Don't start with values. Focus on the vision. And it's simpler than you think to find a common vision. I think that's something I need to really, really think about. Thank you, Paula. Sarah clearly got a lot out of her call as well. Paula was super interesting. The way she challenged my thinking... She made me think about a few things completely differently. The second guide I talked to on this episode is Bin. And and I was really asking her to be my guide. I was seeking advice on how to make sure that the expedition really has an impact. You know, we're on the expedition for the whole of the next nine months. Then we gather in February. And then we start the dissemination phase. 2023 is shouting from the rooftops and sharing what we've learned. But the real question in my mind is how do we make sure that whatever we produce and, and whatever we then choose to share really influences leadership thinking and doesn't just get added to the ever-increasing pile of latest books and thinking about leadership. And and I thought Bin might give me some really good advice on this. But first, I asked her about an expression that she used with me for the last time I spoke to her. She talked about the missing muscle caused by COVID, or maybe even she should really have said the missing muscle that was exercised and prompted by COVID. Have a listen. have a, a really panoramic view of the sort of leadership field. Tell us what the impact of COVID has been. COVID has required us to demonstrate a real different kind of leadership attributes. And that is empathy. That is the care for the people you work with. All of a sudden, I, I think we always knew it was there, but the human needs has really surface to the fore. And I think as a leader, one of the critical attributes we are looking for, and uh, when you look at, you know, whether it's the great resignation or organizations trying to attract talent and engage and all of that, I think it really 
highlights the need for leaders to be empathetic, to be able to relate to people and to acknowledge people in the organization as, as real human beings and acknowledge their needs to be safe, both physically and psychologically. So if anything, I think that is the one aspect that really has become very pronounced in leadership. While it was always there, it's much more reinforced throughout the pandemic. Help me with this, it was always there. Do you think it was always there because people talked about it but didn't do it? I think it was always there because it was intellectually people knew. I always talk about regardless of anything, one of the human needs is the need to be acknowledged and the need to be recognized for our individual uniqueness and our individual needs. We as human beings, we know, doesn't matter which culture you come from, that is one of the most fundamental needs. People need to be heard, need to be seen. So I think to your point, it was always there. People knew intellectually it was there. But I think throughout the pandemic, all of a sudden, it was like a human race under attack, so to speak. And I think we just really came through like, you know, this is something that's just fundamentally important. And I think everybody felt nobody was exempt from that. That was, that was truly a global uh, phenomenon because that was a global pandemic. Everybody needed to feel a sense of safety from that standpoint. Those are big words, human race under attack. Do you mean it as strongly as that? I think we, in the, now we're two years in, right, Julia? I think we have much better perspective on what it is. But I remember the days the entire world went into a lockdown. We never saw this before. And it required us to deal with this very different. Everybody was scrambling as to how do we protect each other? And is that too strong a word? Perhaps. But I do think that was something where you think through it. We've never behaved that way. It challenged some of the most fundamental assumptions we have about work. You used an expression to me that I loved, which was muscle memory. Tell me about that. Yes. So I will start with an example. And it happened to me very often, right? And I think it happened to different people. How often after an intense meeting, work, whatever it is, you get into your car and you start driving. And before you know it, you are at the destination. A lot of times it's your home. You don't really think about what you are doing each turn you are making. You just sort of know what to do, right? We've all experienced that, I dare say. And that's what I call muscle memory. When you've done something enough times that you could actually do it without putting a lot of thought into it, it becomes second nature. Athletes do it plenty, you know, because they are able to perform because they practice thousands and hundreds of thousands of times so when they are there they don't think about it so that's what I mean by muscle memory and why did you use that expression in the context of COVID or post-COVID I think we as human beings we as individuals we as leaders we have a set of muscle memory in terms of what we do at work how we interact with people and how we lead and all of that I think COVID fundamentally challenged us to develop a different set of muscle memory, right? You know, we all went through these things. People have different difficulties, right? All of a sudden you see 
you know, in our context, you see very uh, senior people, uh, you know, they are having a, conducting a very important meeting and the dog start barking, the dog start coming in. That humanizes people. And I think we have accepted, we have embraced in many ways, a lot more of those humanistic qualities in the workplace. And I think that's a set of muscles that we are going to continue to keep. I think that's one of the huge benefits of the pandemic because it made all of us a lot more human. Do you think this muscle change will last? Yes, I, I do. I do. I was going to say I hope so, but I'm optimistic. I think now people, I think we see what people are demanding. I think that's why, you know, from a research perspective, there's so much research and leadership model that talks about human-centric leadership. And really, look, when you look at transformation, you need to start from the needs of the people, whether it's your customers, whether it's your employees, what have you. But I think there's a just huge recognition. And also, I think another aspect is, I think we're also dealing with a whole generation where they are going to demand it. They are not going to relent. They are going to make it clear. And I think for organizations, if you want to tap into that, that pool of talent, you are going to have to show that you care about them. You're going to show that you care about the causes that they care about, genuinely, because otherwise they will vote with their feet. They won't stick around. Do you see a gender element in this change of muscles? The gender element I see, and again, that's a generalization, right? So I've got to be a little bit careful, but with that caveat, what I do see from a gender perspective is female leaders tend to be better at being more empathetic. And I do think there's research to show that, but I think this is one of those things that actually really, I'm going to say, work to the advantage of female leaders. And I think, you know, what I would love to see is all of our female leaders really lean in and really claim that space. I mean, again, I think once upon a time, when there are discussions about emotions and empathy and emotions, I think there was a time it's something to shy away from because that's seen as soft and, you know, you want to be tough. And I, I, I think, you know, again, I'm generalizing things, but I do think there was a time that was, you know, more of seen as more of a weakness, but I actually think that has changed. And I don't think that change is going to go away. I think that change is here to stay. And I think that will really serve well for a lot of our female leaders. Ben, right from the beginning, you said yes when I asked you to be a guide on the expedition. And I know that's about supporting the other women, the members of the expedition. But let's make this, a, a, you're a guide to me um, as the leader of the expedition. There's so much about leadership out there. And some of it is pretty flaky stuff. And I don't know if you feel like it. You sort of think, you know, for every five new brilliant ideas, probably there's only one that I'm particularly interested in. And a lot of it is noise. How have you developed a detector that distinguishes the one from the four? And tell me, how does that speak to the expedition? Because we don't want the outcome. You know, we're not going on this expedition for the last next, spending nine months on it just to produce stuff that'll get put on a pile of more stuff about leadership. Guide me through this. First of all, I think it's a great piece of work you are leading. And I'm just so proud and privileged to be associated with that. 
So thank you, Julia, for the opportunity. So the question I ask is, is that going to impact real change? Is that going to generate real change, right? Forget the theoretical stuff you have. And, you know, and also I think another thing is when you look at a lot of leadership models and all of that, they're more similar than different, genuinely. I mean, we're running out of stuff, new concepts. I, having said that, the one thing I do look at is how much it is about helping people to understand other people and helping people to look at behave in a way that they can be more empathetic, effective in relating to other people and understand other people's needs. For me, that's such a critical component of leadership. The level one stuff, it's the self-awareness. Understand your, your paradigm, your needs, your frames of reference, and how you relate to other people. Because in the end, it's about how you inspire and how you motivate and how you relate to your fellow team members, your fellow colleagues, and all of that. So it will be a lasting shift. You've you you heard that here from one of the most powerful people in the leadership development world, Bin. Thank you. I so hope you are right that it is both lasting and also broad based because it matters so much that we do get a more human based approach to leadership for many, many reasons. But one of them is without doubt that it would be to women's benefit. But also, Bin, I hear you hard and well and clear. We can't be too theoretical in February when the 24 members get together. We have to really produce practical, real, workable ideas, solutions on an approach to leadership that resonates with women. Of course, it needs to be rooted in deep and proper thought, but also practical, real, and workable. So you've met two guides now. There are hundreds of them coming in, and I'm beginning to see more and more of their calls happening with the expedition members. If you would like to be a guide too, I would be utterly delighted. The best way to go about it is simply to send me a message in the LinkedIn group, the Women Emerging LinkedIn group that hangs off my profile. It's a closed group. Send me a message uh, written if needs be, recorded even more because then I get the delight when I wake up in the morning of listening to all your messages and all your ideas. It is a joyful way to start a day. I love them. So do be a guide if you can. It's not a huge commitment, but I think it's one that both Paula and Bin would recommend. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love you to follow the expedition and provide your own stories and perspectives. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging Group on LinkedIn, where you can have your say. 